From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazine, the monthly and quarterly. Our guest this episode, uh, Brian Teacher, distinguished tennis player, winner of the Australian Open in 1980, and a ranked player for a brilliant career on the tournament. Also a winner while he was a student at UCLA of the Ojai, our tennis tournament. We also have Steve Pratt, who's the communications director of the tournament. We have a very lively and far-ranging discussion. I think you're going to enjoy. Hey, Brian. Hey, Steve. Hello. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So today's a big day for the tennis tournament, and uh, we're going to do a little preview for uh, the April 26th through the 30th, but really today is the first day of April, and there's something special going on. Want to tell me about it? Yes, so in the park today, we are going to unveil our new Wall of Fame, um, which actually went up in Libby Park in the year 2000. Alan yeah. Rains had the idea to honor the past champions. It was the 100th anniversary of the Ojai Tournament, and um, they went through the records, and they uh, chose their, um, they, they picked out of the records uh, all the players that had played Ojai that went on to win a Grand Slam which would be either the Australian Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, or the U.S. Open in singles, in flushing meadows. doubles, or mixed doubles. And they found 76 players whose names wow. went on Out of how the many wall. thousands have come through Ojai? Yes, so... Um, Tens of thousands, easily. Incredible number of, of players. Southern California, of course, the, the hotbed, uh, the greatest uh, area or section. Uh, of tennis and uh, of course our our guest uh, here today Brian Teacher is one of those that's on the Wall of Fame he's from San Diego originally and uh, and is on the Wall of Fame having won the Australian Open back in 1981 wow 81 was that was tennis was I'm trying to remember who would be big then I'm thinking Jimmy Connor and Chrissy Everett that was like a McEnroe. major sport McEnroe. yeah John McEnroe yeah, that was. I don't want to say a golden age. I hate saying that, but I could say it. It's a golden. Yeah, it's a golden it was age. a golden age. Yeah. So you're right in the thick of it. Yeah. It's a cool time to play. I mean, we were, you know, we were transitioning wet wooden rackets, right? Wooden rackets, and when I won the uh, Australian in '81, I had switched over to the first mid-size graphite racket. Yeah, what, guys what, were still playing with the with the wooden rackets. Was that a competitive advantage that uh, really? I mean, doesn't it, uh, the wooden rackets would loosen up all the way through the matches. You have to be tuning them up all the time, huh? I, f- I found that, you know, I was good for the graphite. I got a little bit more power, I thought. But yeah. the problem was that the materials at the time uh, weren't that great. So you had a really very small sweet spot. So if yeah. you hit it around the anywhere off center, it w- really would die. But if It'd it was dink. right, it, yeah. would, it would feel good if you hit it in the center and then off center. It was just like, what happened there, right? Yeah. <laughs> now the materials are so much better that, you like know. There's an all sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. So, Steve, the um, now I know Tracy Austin comes to Ojai every now and then. And who are some of the other names on there? Arthur Ashe? Yes. Uh, some of our past champions include uh, Stan Smith, uh, Arthur Ashe, um, Patrick McEnroe, the Brian Bros, 
Um, you can go further back and Bill Tilden and Bobby Riggs, yeah, Pancho Gonzalez, and you name it. If if uh, they were if, a big tennis uh, star, they were working their way through Ohio. It's a mandatory stop on the circuit. Huh? Pretty much, that was back back in the day. Uh, the Ohio was uh, the preeminent place uh, where where people came. There was the LA Tennis Club, of course, uh, down in LA, yeah. which started in 1927. Um, in the Pacific Southwest was a big, a big tournament, yeah. but um, the Ojai has really been for 125 years since um, 1896. Is that the right? First year of play. Wow! And then it was mostly Thatcher School students and people from Ventura. It was an amateur only uh, tournament. Of course, everything was only amateur until at that, until, until the 1968 until oh, the, really? the until the Open the era. Uh, of course, players turned pro like Jack Kramer and Pasha Gonzalez. They had a pro barnstorming tour in the 40s and yeah. 50s. Um, but this is one of the, the great amateur tournaments. Of course, now uh, we are actually part pro because 15 mm-hmm. years ago we started uh, offering prize money in our men's and women's open. And points for the divisions. tour, right? Did no points. Get, no. So that's one thing we, we are lacking. Uh, but Mike Taggart was one of our... Special oh, yeah. volunteers, business neighbor with the most incredible collection of cars I've ever seen. Oh, he was incredible, and he loved the Ohio. And he officiated the Ohio and called lines for for Connors and and uh, some of the greats, and had some great stories. I would not um, want to get out there with Jimmy Connors and McEnroe calling po- points and lines. I think I'd welt under the pressure. Yes, yeah, yeah. so Taggart wanted to increase the open prominence and decided to donate some of his. Um, you know, some some of his own money, uh, and we're up to twenty five thousand now. Nice prize money, men's and women's uh, yeah. open. That's a nice little payday. So, um, Brian, you came through Ojai in the seventies. I mean, imagine more than once if you were on the Southern yeah. California. Yeah, I played it. Ranks. I played at UCLA, and we, we would come up each, uh, you know, each of my four years I played at and UCLA. And now it's Pac-8 then. Right? Exactly, Pac-8, and it was, you know, it was the strongest division in the country. We we, tip, we typically, between, you know, there was usually an NCAA champ between UCLA, Stanford, and USC. And so I played for UCLA. So it was always, you know, it was a great place to come and play and get ready for the NCAAs. Yeah. Did, were you recruited at UCLA? Was that always the school that you wanted to go to? Was it the tennis program that brought you there? Pretty much. Pretty much. They, you know, that's where I wanted to go. Uh, Jimmy Connors was there the year before. And uh, they had a couple other great Americans. Jeff Broviak, who'd won the NCAAs, and Haroon Rahim, who, were, who was uh, from Pakistan. And... They just, uh, yeah, I just loved UCLA. I loved staying in California and I loved UCLA, and so that's where I wanted to go to school. Yeah, and you grew up in San Diego. Correct, yeah. And tennis was part of your life all along? Yeah, from a pretty early age, I swam competitively early and played tennis, and then I you know, got too many ear, nose, and throat eye infections from the swimming. Mm-hmm. They, didn't, they didn't have goggles in those days, right? So you just yeah, <laughs> the swimmer's ears, nothing to mess around with. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, were you always good? Oh, well, that's a is there a natural that's a uh, relative skill? that's a relative term. I mean, always yeah. good. Good compared to what, right? You know, I mean, locally, yeah. locally, I was good, but you know, then you know, you when you get your ass handed to you by somebody that beats you pretty badly, then I say, well, man, I really suck, right? And so, yeah, you know, so it's humbling. It's humbling. Yeah, that's why it's such an amazing sport because there's always another level to go to, pretty much. Yeah, it does seem like. How do you think that the 
uh, your peer group of players would stand up against today's? Uh, today's you know, Pac-12 players. Well, oh, today's Pac-12 players. For example, okay. just to get a comparison. Today's Pac-12 players, there'd be no problem. I mean, we would still be right at the top, if not yeah. better. Because when you look at it today, what's happened is, I mean, basically the standard for American tennis isn't isn't the level that we were at basically uh, in the 70s. You know, they don't produce mm-hmm. as many world-class players out of the collegiate ranks as as we had when i was playing we had 40 of the top 100 in the world hmm. in in the uh in, in the world out of where we're out of uh, the states and they all went to college pretty much and then yeah. pretty much kind of the period like from i would say from the 80s on people started not going to college as much and started going on the tour as there became more and more prize money in the game. I mean, when yeah. I first started at uh, UCLA in 72, I mean, that was when the first uh, U.S. Open was, uh, you know, it went yeah, away it from amateur just, to professional. Yeah, just getting to be a thing. It was $14,000 uh, yeah. Ashbeat Ocker. You know, that was the first prize money, 70, you know, and so they were starting just to become so, prize money there. So Yeah, that was uh, early 70s, a lot of professional sports changed then that was the free agency in baseball which really made the big difference in the in the, yeah. how was the women's tennis in those days was that uh picking up i remember like avon gulagong and some of those it, other it it didn't have equal prize money <clears throat> pardon me like it has today so it's come a long way yeah but yeah they had great players back then but they have a lot more women I would say who are definitely, you know, more athletic, bigger and stronger playing the game today because it's because of the popularity of the sport. You got a lot of yeah. Eastern European women who have come up and just Europe in general and even compared to the men, you know, Europe is uh, Europe is uh, is a big powerhouse now in tennis. Yeah, and it didn't used to be a I'm I think it's a pretty new sport for especially behind the iron curtain. I wonder how that happened. It's called hunger. Is it desperation? It's called, it's called, yeah, I, I didn't say desperation. I said well, hunger. hunger. Yeah. Actual that's physical that's, hunger, that's, trying to get fed. That's different than desperation. Yeah, that's true. It's yeah. more drive. More drive, exactly. Hungry to to run harder, to train harder, to get there, to, you know, this is my ticket. That's their work ethic. Huh? Right. What was the coaching like back then Was uh, compared to today? Is it... Okay, compared to today, okay, so compared to today, like, I didn't, you know, after I won the Australian Open, then I could afford to travel with the coach. Yeah, you know? okay. Before I won the Australian Open, no, and typically, hardly anybody had a coach. Today, if you're in the top 50 in the world, you've got an entourage. Yeah. You've got your coach, you've got your trainer, you, you know. Nutritionist. you got the person that books your, your travel. No, your astrologer. You don't, you don't have that, no, yeah, but you got, I mean, there's a whole team with these people today. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, I've talked to some players where, you know, they're in the top 50 and they're spending, you know, four to 500,000 a year with their team per year. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, it's kind of an up and down thing too. It must be hard to, you know, manage like. Business managers get to be a big deal at that certain point. You know, I think I think it's I think they're kind of you know more in control. I think they probably took more out of the paycheck when I was playing than they did today because yeah. there wasn't as much money, so they were taking more of it. And, yeah. And now you know there's more people doing it, so it's just more competitive. Yeah. Wow. What a what a ecosystem. Yeah, it's interesting. 
capital capital system, right? Yeah. Well, how did you get into UCLA? What was the how did you pop up on the radar? Uh, how did I pop up? You know, I was a top junior just along the way, and uh, uh, you get recruited. You know, yeah. you play if you you know you get a national ranking and you get recruited and. What was your national ranking when you were you still know, a th- club th- player? I think that uh, my senior year in high school, maybe like five or six in wow. the country. Yeah, that's a, that's so you were definitely recruited by more than one school, I would imagine. Yeah, yes, I was, but uh, you know, I didn't go to too many. You know, like yeah, sort of had to visit. Yeah, I kind of knew. Well, I why? To. Why UCLA? Was it Jimmy Connor? Just knowing you know, that he'd it, been there. It was. Yeah, the weather, uh, the coach, the the lifestyle of UCLA, what it had to offer. You know, it was a fun school. It was California. You know, yeah. great tennis. I mean, great Girls. weather. Uh, they weren't bad. I'll tell you, <laughs> it was all of the above. Right? It was. It was a good. Uh, it was a good formula. Yeah, and who was your coach then? Uh, Glenn Bassett, and so I'm sure he's he, a well-known name in the he, industry. But what what made him was, a good coach? Yeah. What made him a good coach? Well, he he was a he was a player himself. He and he played um, he played a little bit. Of course, it was amateur back then. And I think you know he was just a very dedicated player, and he became a very dedicated yeah. coach, uh, working with his players, trying to get the most out of them. And it was just his, I think his passion for the game. Is so, that what came to? Was he yeah. a disciplinarian? Or he was a inspirational. Discipl- he or? was a disciplinarian. So yeah. there was like, if you looked at like when I was playing Dick Gould, who ended up surpassing Glenn, Glenn Bassett. I think at one point had the most NCAA championships of any sport, oh, yeah. and then Dick Gould came along and wasn't necessarily a tennis player per se, but was a great coach manager. And uh, and so his philosophy ended up working for you know for Dick, but. Uh, but Glenn was, you know, kind of a disciplinarian and just, you know, mm-hmm. the de- detail oriented about your game and wanting to work with you. So, you know, yeah. there's different different methodologies, but they work both well for both guys. Yeah. You say he was the winningest NCAA coach. At yeah. At, at the time. The yes. Wow. I think he had. I'm not sure. I, I'd say maybe 11 to 14, something like that or something. And know. this is the John Wooden era. The John well. Wooden era. Yeah. So coaching was, it just seems like it had more of a mystique or an allure, these wise old men, Tom Landry. You know, 100%. Yeah, it did. You're right. It did kind of, you know, John, well, John Wooden. I mean, everybody looked up to John Wooden. I mean, it was just like what what, what, that, guy, what that guy was doing at the time was, I mean, UCLA hadn't lost a like a like a game the whole year or something. Yeah. Or for maybe even it was like two or three years. I don't know. It was, it was right there where they lost their first game. I think I was when was Walton was a senior. I think it was my freshman year. Everybody was in shock. You know? It's yeah. like, oh, my God, what happened? Wow. Just the uh, stories about John Wooden. I have a friend who's a uh, gastroenterologist, and when he was still in residency, he w- worked at UCLA Medical Center. He gave John Wooden a, a checkup, you know, and he had to do the uh, – you know, cavity probing and stuff. So he's got John Wooden uh, face down on the operating table, and he's checking him out. And uh, John Wooden goes, young man, does your mother know what you do for a living? <laughs> That's, funny. That's pretty funny. Oh. So he's, you were in the milieu. I mean, that must have been very exciting. Like, 
you know, what's the name of that sports center there in UCLA? It must have been the was, hub of activity. Well, it's the Poly wood, Pavilion. Poly no, Poly Pavilion. I think they call, the think they call it the, the wooden, wooden sport pavilion, wood no. center now. They have a big statue of them out there. It's very impressive. Yeah. But yeah, it must have felt like. Did you think you were going pro then? Is that why you were you were on that path? You know, I really i I hadn't considered it when I went to when I started as a freshman. I didn't think I was good enough, and you know, and I just uh, just started, you know, doing better my my freshman year with the competition, you know, with the older yeah. kids and stuff. And before then, you know, it was like, you know, when you're in your age group of you're, you're always playing, you know, against guys that are sometimes a year to two years older than you. And yeah. so physically, you're not strong enough to to beat those guys just because of age factor. Right. Yeah. So you haven't got your full growth yet. Exactly. Yeah. And so then, I, you know, when I got to college and, you know, got a little stronger, I was 17 when I when I uh, entered UCLA. But then I, I started working out hard with the team and just got stronger and started started climbing the ladder, kind of starting beating guys that would consider beating me and then got a little more confident and just it just starts building, right? And then my second year, I kind of, uh, I won the pack, pack, pack eight, eight singles, here, singles you know, and doubles. And so at that time, because it, like I said, it was the toughest, uh, it was the toughest league in the, in the country. So I yeah. was seated one going into the NCAA and uh, it was funny because I played Singles and doubles. So I played in the pack eights. I played a lot of tennis, you know. And uh, and yeah. right after the tournament was over, all of a sudden I couldn't I couldn't walk the next day. And I'm going, what's Just going on? Physical exhaustion. Yeah, my back. I started having problems with my back basically. Oh. And so, uh, well, what was the emphasis of the game then? Was it the power serves or the net game or the? I think what was it? I think really it was it was a different type of game obviously than you see today because it was wooden rackets and so you had to have in a sense you had to have a more rounded skill set in your yeah. game so you needed to be you know competent in in the backcourt and you needed to be competent up at net yeah. and so you needed to I think that more people were volleying more effectively in those days because of the because of the technology, it was very hard to put the ball away with a wooden racket. You couldn't get the power off of the, sure. with the wood in the thing, and, and so the swings and everything became, you know, became a little larger and more more hips and more, you know, more faster rotation of the racket heads mm -hmm. with the swings and stuff, and the strings became different. So. You had to have better skill set, I think. You see guys Just today. All around players. Yeah, you see guys today that, you know, most guys, you know, big serve, big forehand, big backhand, and not all that great up at net. Because they don't have to be if you're going to serve 140 miles an hour or whatever. Yeah. Huh? yeah, like you saw, we saw Isner, he volleys okay, but he's not a great volley. He's not, even with even with the best serve in the world, he doesn't serve in volley. You know, it's yeah. serving big forehand. But you see, like now, a guy like Alcaraz, who just you know who who won Indian Wells, and uh, he can serve he can serve volley he can he can mix it up and he's you know he just he just lost his one in the world ranking but he's only 19 years old so I mean it was it's, he's he's quite impressive to say the least you know he's got kind of a full court game not too many guys can can have that have that full court game yeah. today. That's uh, was that the training back then? You had to work on all aspects of the game, or was there emphasis on whatever your weak spot was? Or I think that it was just more balanced. Uh, you know yeah. what you were working on today too. I think too many coaches just work on the the, the, the big serve and the forehand backhand, and not a full yeah. court game to give yourself more options. The, the top guys have have the full court game definitely. Yeah, but they're not necessarily trained to that, huh? 
Well, they 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 figure it out. They train enough yeah. to figure it out. There, no nobody is really serving volley. You just can't seem to do it today with the technology and the speed of the rackets and the strings and the control. That guys are too good. But you can mix it up. Yeah, yeah. What about um, your physical conditioning? What was what was that like? Was there a lot of running stairs and and uh, weights or I, what? What was that? I think most guys in the day. So when, you know. So when I mentioned I started having problems with my back, yeah. basically, so then you were about nineteen, you said nineteen, problems in nineteen, back. and so I started getting into yoga at that time. Hmm. And uh, in nineteen seventy something, you're doing yoga. That's, I got that's into awesome. I got into the Bikram yoga, which is kind of a odd thing today that he's the been, hot yoga. Yeah, yeah, and so I did that, and so nobody was doing any stretching exercises, barely. And so I, I would be doing, you know, on the court, 20 minutes of yoga, and everybody thought I was a freak, you know, and yeah. nobody was doing anything, basically. You know, it's like they'd come out, they'd touch their toes and stretch, you know. Yeah. There was no real was, jumping jacks and weird things, you know, and it's like, oh, what the heck's that teacher guy doing from California, you know? So, I you know, but now everybody incorporates Pilates and yoga and, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And, Core and, and, exercises, yeah, pl balance. You know, plyometrics and yeah. light, lightweights, lightweights typically. Like if you look at Federer and uh, you look at Medvedev, you look at Federer, uh, Djokovic, you know, they're, they're real lean. They're oh, real, they are. They're, they're like extremely, yeah, yeah, exactly. Low body fat. And, and even this kid Sinner today who, who just beat Alcaraz yesterday, real sinewy, strong elastic, uh, really very strong core. Yeah, well, those games can go three hours, I imagine. Five hours. Five I mean, hours no, no, the, 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 the slams, I mean, they go, you can have a five-and-a-half-hour match, basically. I can't even imagine the conditioning you would have to have. You think about boxers, how they get tore up after 15 rounds and the kind of conditioning, the miles that they have to put in and to be out there at that level for that amount of time and just the mental focus. You must lose, like, weight. You must lose, like, pounds. Well, yeah, you have to. Yeah, you're burning a lot of calories. You're running a lot of, yeah, a lot of, a lot of those two guys today are so fast and strong. They're just running, like, one win sprint after another, it looks like. It does. I don't know how they can keep that up. By the way, I scratched my head about that, too. You're wondering, like, what are they, some kind of superhumans? So maybe they have. They're soft, not getting a little help. They have, they have software implants in them. Maybe we're not you know, flying, we're they're not like cyborgs. Yeah. Cyborgs. It there seems like it. They're like robots almost. They're just so I don't know. Understand? It's like you're level. watching a software game a little bit. I'm going what? Yeah, I think about that with football too because somebody who's six foot nine and weighs three hundred and thirty pounds, they're running a four seven, a four eight. That's that much. It's just Crazy. Newtonian laws of motion. Yeah. It's the irresistible force and immovable objects. It's just, I just am astounded, astonished. And you think about it, like if you were ranked so highly, and this is an entire globe at that time, three and a half, four billion people. I mean, you got to be like, it must, did you feel elite? Like, well, you feel you feel, you feel different than just normal people walking around. Yeah, I mean, when you're young and you're on top of the world, you kind of feel invincible. You know, it's like oh, I can do anything, right? You know, yeah. physically, but but the, you know, so we you were we were talking about training. So it was just you know, I, I ended up doing a lot of yoga, a lot of running. Yeah. I try, I did a tiny bit of weightlifting, but I really couldn't do weightlifting because it just it put too much strain on my hips and my knees and stuff mm. so a lot of guys would say a lot of you know today a lot of them do do different kinds of weightlifting now mm. some bodies can handle it and some don't i guarantee you 
that uh, that this kid Sinner and Djokovic and those yeah. guys with those lean bodies they don't do late they don't do weights. No, it it would uh, stiffen them up probably. They lose some of the long fiber elasticity. I think the guy Alcaraz can, he's got a little stronger frame. He can do yeah. a little bit weights, and I'm sure he does. And does that show up in his game? Like, how does it show up in his game? Though? I just think you can just, you can look at their body types and you can just tell basically who's able to do some weights. I mean, the guys that are you know have thicker thicker legs and thicker yeah. thicker uh, butts basically they're able to do you know they're yeah. able to handle a little bit more weight Doing with the, their, the squats and the deadlifts and those kind of exercises. I think some of them are. Yeah. Hmm. On top of everything else, like. I don't know. Like, what was your regimen back then? Like, how many days were you training, days off? What was your nutrition like and all the... You were just, you know, I was just mostly playing, you know, we'd play about four hours a day and maybe do some running and some yoga. Three to four hours, three three to four hours a day, you know, just depending, not necessarily all sets, depending what you need to be working on. And uh, so, you know, it was five or six hours of exercise a day, pretty much. With the whole team, this was the... The whole team and myself. Well, yeah, I'm talking about like uh, still back at UCLA because did you know like like okay, this is a way to to make a living? Or let no. me let me put phrase it a different way. Like when you went to school to get your education, which must have been the benefit. Right. Thinking why I'm doing. What was your goal then? What did my you goal was to. What, my, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wasn't sure. I just I wasn't sure. I was an econ major and just wanted to you know wanted to do well in school and see where see where I ended up and. I had an inkling after my second year where I said I, um, you know, I got to, uh, you know, was was the number one seed going to the NCAs, and I was hurt basically after the Pac eights. That, you know, I thought, well, you know, why don't I try going professional? Let's see how I do, right? Might as well. Yeah. So I got to a level where I said, well, you know, I'm I'm seated one in the country. I might as well well try this. But I said, you know. I was kind of having a lot of fun at school, so it was like. Yeah, also, sure. I didn't. I didn't really want to stop school, so I finished the four years and then started playing pro. There wasn't enough money to even you know at that point. Yeah, but that must have been that <clears throat> was the age where that all started to change. It it really you know where it really changed is well after I quit. So I you know I quit. I played till like eighty six, and really you know with injuries injuries after eighty four didn't really play much. But uh, you know in the in the Mid to late '80s, the prize money started going up four or five hundred percent from where where I was. Well, I won the Australian Open. The prize money was fifty grand. I think today it's like you know it's three million, million. Three million, yeah. I think. Wow. So, uh, how else did you do in any other majors? Did you think? Uh, I got to the quarters of, of Wimbledon uh, in '83. Lost in five sets to Tim Mayot and. Um, Close match, uh, round of 16 in the U.S. Open, and then I got the semifinals of uh, I got the semifinals of Wimbledon in U.S. Open doubles. Uh, that was actually my first success, probably in '77. I was Where you're like, okay, I can do this. That gave me a lot of confidence to be. Yeah. To, so I mean, I actually I got started playing with an older guy uh, from Australia, uh, Bob Carmichael. His nickname was Nailbags because he was a, kind of a tough guy, and he Nailbags. He, he didn't have enough money to play on <laughs> the like tour. Like a mob nickname. <laughs> yeah. Well, his nickname was because he didn't have enough money to play on the tour yeah. at the time, and so he'd have to he'd have to work as a carpenter. Okay. To raise money, so they called him nailbags, basically, and it kind of That's fit awesome. him because he was kind of a drill, really dry sense of humor and a tough guy yeah. that you wouldn't want to mess with nailbags. But he you was a, mess he was a fun guy. Yeah, nailbags, nice. 
So what was the, um, you know, who are some of the other other players? And what was the camaraderie like? Because probably the tour wasn't that big. You knew everybody, didn't you know everybody on the tour? As they were coming and going and pretty, the people. Pretty much. But when you say you know everybody, it's like everybody today on the tour knows everybody. I mean, everybody, they kind of, in a sense. If you're in the yeah. top 100, 200 players in the world, everybody kind of knows each other in a sense. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, if you're like a 1,000 in the world, maybe the guy doesn't know who you are. But, you know, it's a yeah. small circle. It's Yeah, it really is. I mean, I just always scale to the amount of people on the planet. And I know, like, I don't remember who it was, A-Rod or somebody got some crazy contract, you know, like $40 million a year for, you know, five years or something. And people are like, that's ridiculous. And I'm thinking, yeah, it kind of is, but he's one of... You know, however many baseball players there are. Well, 700 in the yeah. entire world. Yeah, well, they don't have any contracts like that in tennis. Maybe, you know, maybe no. Federer is making that with his shoes now. And yeah, like of course, endorsement or, deals. Yeah. So that must have started when you were coming along, the sneakers and the yeah, equipment. Yeah, but and, nothing like, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, let's put it this way. McEnroe, you know, was one in the world. I mean, you know, he, he, he didn't make like, uh, Compared to what the guys are making today, I mean, it's like off the charts compared to what John yeah. did, I'm sure. And probably 80% of their income comes from its sponsorships and so forth, huh? Versus w- the purse on the tour. I would, I would say a good 70%, 70 yeah. to 80% probably, yeah. Wow. And how how does that work? Like, who approaches who? Did you how, have an agent? How, yeah, how does it work? It, you know, it's like, well, it, this is how it works. You win... And you attract people. And you attract sponsors. You lose and nobody Nobody wants wants to talk to you. Okay, that's how it works. Yeah. What's the saying? Uh, uh, Success has many fathers. Failure is an orphan. There you go. Yeah. It must be like, was there a moment? uh, You know, you said you had back trouble when you were 19 years old. That typically doesn't get better. No. Was that chronic? It is. It was chronic. And I basically have had two hip replacements and it was all related to that started at age uh, 19 that I had arthritis already in my spine and my neck and everywhere. And I was wearing, uh, I had like a, a fusion to my, my fifth lumbar vertebrate was uh, the, uh, had a fusion in it. And when was the pelvis? This is when I was 19, I found out. So I had one leg that was two thirds of an inch shorter. I was playing with no arch supports because we had no arch arches in our shoes in the, in the early 70s. Yeah. And one leg was two thirds of an inch shorter. So I'd already developed arthritis in my hip and spine at that age. And so that's when I got into the yoga. And actually, my back and stuff did improve, but I had sure. to be religious about the, the yoga. But eventually, it just wore out. Yeah, there's only so much, huh? Yeah. Well, you are you seem to be a very, uh, you're a tall fellow and you got great posture. You must keep it, keep it up. You're not hunched over and walking with a limp. Yeah. Well, two hip replacements, <laughs> I keep you upright, but I do do a lot of yoga still Yeah. and uh, try to keep what I got. <laughs> yeah. From sure. fall apart. Marshal your resources. It's like, I'm, I'm with you, brother. I know what it's like yeah. to start falling apart. I just got nerve induction study and uh, it wasn't good. Oh, in the yeah. spine? In my, um, yeah, lower back. Not, yeah, C5 or something. No, I don't even know. There I don't even want to get too much into it, but it's not fun. It is right? constant. Yeah, you got to, you got to like, I used to do yoga every day. I was still playing baseball until I was 50 years old, not professional or anything, but you know, it's a very competitive game here yeah. in Ventura County. 
and it was baseball or softball. You're playing baseball? No, this is baseball. Oh, wow. This is our ball. I was a pitcher. Wow. And I can, you know, I can barely comb my hair now. My shoulder's so racked and tore yeah. up. Well, you can join me. I got to have a shoulder replacement, so. Oh no. Yeah, it's. I haven't got there yet. I've tore my labrum a couple times though, but just the rehab exercises made a big deal. I had some of my best years when I was in my forties. But it's interesting. I see a lot of the players start to see their performance start in tennis, especially. We were talking about that a little earlier. I think of all the major sports, tennis seems to show up your, you know, your age quicker than most anything else. Well, we got a lot of it's a lot of it's a movement sport, and it's not it's not like a regular jogging sport. You know, you're doing these yeah. lateral cuts and. And uh, a lot of stress on your joints. If you you know you're cutting one way on one leg, and then you're jumping the other way on the other leg, and stuff yeah. back and forth in one direction. It's just and it's like constant for hours a day, and it's it takes its toll. And eventually, I think it. You know, if you look at John McEnroe, for instance, he's a he's very peculiar in that way. Is that he's set. I mean, John's four years younger. He's sixty four, and he hasn't had a major surgery or a major injury. And he moves unbelievable for his age still mm -hmm. at, at age 64. But most guys have bad arthritis in something. Their yeah. back, their knees, their shoulders, their elbow, you know, or they need a replacement. It's so it's unusual not to have the serious stuff going on. Yeah. How do you think you'd do against McEnroe right now if you got out there on the court? Uh, I, I'm just, just like I, I wouldn't even I, I don't I don't throw him down the gauntlet. How do you how do you play with you when you don't when you have hip replacements? It's, it's not it's not something you want to even try to do. Yeah, and I imagine the doctors tell you to take it easy on those hips too, huh? It just depends on how soon you want to have a new one again, right? Yeah. You know, if you want to go through that. But I can't even play because I need a shoulder replacement right now. So it's like, oh goodness, is that scheduled or is it just something you're putting I'm, off? I'm putting it off. You yeah. know, who wants to who wants to be operated on? Yeah. Well, what do you do for sports now? Do you still play? Uh, don't tell me pickleball, please. I don't want to get into you know, that. We're not going to have that discussion today. No. I mean, I, I play a little bit of that, but, but pretty much, you know what I do? I was doing, um, I've done mountain biking uh, for probably, I would say, since I was in my mid 20s So probably 40 years I've done mountain biking. Yeah. Now I stopped that the last two years because of my hips just getting too tight from the uphill climb. Oh, yeah. And I don't want to ride on the street. I don't want to get hit by a car, so I was riding in the mountains, and I stopped it now because it's just too much, you know, too much stress on the on the yeah. upper portion of the hip. So, you know what I do? I walk a good hour a day. I do some elliptical uh, work. I do go to the gym, do weights, and do yoga, and, and I'm happy. You know, it's yeah. like the bottom line is I think when you get in your 50s and 60s, you know, it's nice just to feel good and not have pain and, get, and feel like you're going to get injured. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen these aura rings. Do you know what these are? Yeah, my, my partner, uh, yeah. Yeah, he li he loves it. Do you like it? I absolutely, I'm a proselytizer for him because the metrics, you know, pairs up on your app. It's got everything. What, what Not you, just like your sleep, but it tells you your REM sleep, deep yeah. sleep, how many times you wake up. So do you think it's accurate or you actually just like it because it's giving you all this stuff? Yeah, who knows if that information is really accurate. But the sleep part, I do know is accurate i can tell when i had a bad night's sleep it always correlates you know i can oh good i, I know i was wondering yeah i think that part like the o2 saturation and stuff i know when i got the covid that definitely you know i could see that i could see the temperature going up on the app and i could see the o2 saturation going down i'm like oh shoot man
Did you ever test it with a with a, a, a finger reader on the O2 saturation versus that? Or no, no, I haven't done that. That's a good idea. Yeah. I'd be curious how accurate it is. Yeah, they have updates all the time. You know the software updates, and you know it just gets more and more granular. The detail. I'm I'm enjoying it. When, when do you think we're going to get our, our software updates? Our software updates? You mean humanity? No, with the, yeah, with the, you know AI and Elon Musk and what's oh, going on. Oh, we're done. And, and we're singularity, no, singularity. Done. It's coming. It's coming. I just like I want to get this on a record right now. Our new digital overlords. I salute you. I just want to get it on the record now. I don't right. want to get. So you're in the tech sector too. I, we were talking about that. The, the um, tell me about your app and how that came about. And that. Yeah, sure. Well, I've got you know the app is Full Court Tennis, and uh, it came about uh, about five years ago. I was working uh, coaching, yeah. and I was using some apps on the court where you can take your phone and you can take an image or a video of. The person hitting the ball and then you can instantly show the person scroll it back and forth so you can mm -hmm. see their stroke and you can you can press a button draw on it show graphics and you could press a button and compare it to another shot if you had that stroke in the in the app and then and i started thinking well and i was so i was working with students and they said wow this is like great and mm -hmm. then i thought well you know it's not really set up exactly for tennis and coaching so i said why don't i why don't i build this for tennis and 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 so I started building it, and I started. Yeah, when, when was this? Well, in the last five years, I've been I've been building. It. It's been out for about a year now, and yeah. so I've keep adding to the technology. And so I've got a pro library on it, where I've got some of the pro players on the tour, like Taylor Fritz is one of them. Mm. And uh, so you can compare your strokes side by side to his. And so, like when you look at, you could say, well, you know, different players have different styles of game, but the bottom line is. Their styles of game might be different, but they have essential ingredients that are the yeah, same. And the so, fundamentals. Yeah, yeah, it's like looking at, the, like, okay, we want a chocolate cake, we want a vanilla cake, we want a strawberry cake. They all have the basic ingredients of a cake, yeah. right? But they're just little different flavors. So if you can look at one stroke and compare it to two or three pros, then you get the essential ingredients. Oh, my gosh, this is what I'm doing. So you could self-learn on the app, but... I also made it so you could hire a coach from around the world. And to then get, he'll have all this data already on your the recording and so forth. So you can connect. Yeah. So you can take an image. You can you can you can connect to a coach anywhere in the world that's on the app. And you could take a, you know, a stroke, get a stroke lesson from, uh, you know, from the world's best coaches, basically. And or you could put, load your match on the app and you can hire him for a live video call and go over a whole match. Mm -hmm. And get get advice from experts all over the world, and so built full court tennis. And you can yeah. also follow and interact with them. You know, they they got a, a feed where they can post their feeds and full social media. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about how the what's the business model? Subscription or this, the, the it, 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 it'll be subscription. It's subscription, yeah. and we take a we take a 15 percent fee. 16. It's actually I think it's 16 percent of. When you're uh, when you when you hire a coach, the coach pays a sixteen percent. Oh, I now, yeah, that sounds great. Like it's, uh, I don't know, remember what the model. I'm trying to remember, but it's an aggregation of all the coaches and so forth. Like uh, you know, a, a hub where they can yeah, hire, match up players and. And coaches. Yeah, so we're like a we're like a middleman. If if you get hired mm -hmm. from a co if you hire a coach, the coach pays us a fee, and so they can just build that into their to their yeah. rates. But it, there's also a service subscription service that if you want to just if, so coaches have their own 
30 students they teach, let's say, per week, and they're already charging their students. So they don't necessarily want to charge them more. They just maybe want to give them a remote lesson where the kid can send them. Yeah. The kid can send them video and they can analyze and send it back. They have a private lesson space. We can invite parents into there because a lot of times parents, it's important for yes. parents to see what the kids are working on with the coach. And so they can remind Junior what he needs to work on. Yeah. And so you, or you could have multiple coaches. So now today you got the main coach, the assistant coach or the traveling coach. Yeah. And you got the player and they can all send this stuff. What am I doing wrong? What does it look like I'm doing here? Yeah. I'm or trouble. what happened here? Get a second opinion on this. Yeah. So it's all those different combinations of things you can do with the app. And we take, you know, as far as the coaches, uh, we don't take any of the money. Stripe is the largest payment process yeah, in the world. Yeah. And they process it all for us. Yeah. How did you get your tech team on this? How did that work? Like the through, development? Through trial and error. Really? And, and, and then it's funny, my uh, my partner, Steve Lehman, he had a, a company, uh, Business Rockstars. And so it was an entrepreneurial show. So I was I was on the show and we were talking with the lady who started Think Thin Bars or whatever. And, and so we were talking about the app and everything. And then somebody contacted me from Europe on hmm. on there, and I already had, and I already was using some tech guys, and he said he wanted to help me, and so I said, really, that sounds. Let me let me look at your resume and stuff, yeah. and so I I looked at his resume, and I said, oh, you know what, he's got a good resume. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna hire this guy, and so he's been with me now for for five years, basically working. And where where you said he's in, he's out of Poland. Oh wow, yeah. So he's been my main guy for five years. I got other guys, but he's been my main guy. So that's you know, it's interesting how the tech community is so dispersed like that. Oh yeah, it always has been. It's not like you it's, know, like Fiverr. You can hire people from China or Ukraine, all over. It's really awesome. But the thing that I have found, and I don't know, if it's happened to you, but there's a lot of grifters and bullshit artists out there. Hundred percent. You got to be careful and. Uh, you got to be real detail oriented with the contracts, and and because uh, yeah. yeah, you it's easy it's easy to get kind of taken horn swoggled, as yeah. they used to say. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, interesting space. So wow, that's 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 really I can see how that but, works. But I, actually, I think we are going into pickleball with it with it because oh, yeah. because <laughs> oh. <laughs> now they made, so right, we got we one. We're pickleball. just coming out. For, you know, it's called uh, full court pickleball. And because okay. and the technology transforms well into pickleball. Yeah, sure it would. I can see that. Yeah. I don't even know how. I remember our pickup basketball game on Mondays. There was a guy behind Matilla at the junior high school here. You see the pickleball signs. Like I had no idea what that was for years until the controversy at Libby Park about the noise with the neighbors, with the thunking of the oh, ball. Oh, yeah. It makes and, a lot of noise. Yeah. And then the people that I know, especially tennis players, not just tennis players, but any people that say, oh, you don't have to do tennis. And, you know, you just get out there and you can start having fun right away. And, uh, I mean, they're like, it's like a cult. It's starting to feel like a cult. <laughs> they're crazy. you got to get out there. got to get out there. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a low denominator to entry. Yeah, I think the the barrier tent. There's a great article in the New Yorker magazine about a year and a half ago, and there's a couple people who are making you know bank, like making great living at pickleball. Hey, it hey, happened no, in no time well, at all. It got to be like a professionalized. Well, listen to this. So John McEnroe, Andy Roddick, Michael Chang, and who's the other one? 
There's one more. Michael Chang, Andy Roddick, who we missing? Uh, Tomorrow, they're playing on ESPN for a million bucks. Wow. Is it winner take all or it's it's a it's a round robin. It's a round robin. Agassi. Oh Agassi's my part of it. Yeah. That's right. They're not pickleball players and and basically, you know, some sponsor came to them with Hard Rock and they said, "Let's put this thing together." And so it's just like people will see. So I mean, you know, here's yeah. guys that are, you know. So it, it does trans, you know, I mean, if you play tennis, you can play pickleball. Yeah, I feel you would have a great advantage just from the volleying and so forth. You do, but it's still it's a little different, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's quite a bit different, but you know. But I think I think let's put it this way: a top tennis player that said, "Okay, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna switch over to pickleball." Mm-hmm. I think if he played it for three or four months, he he could be at dominate. the top of it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if he'd dominate. He'd be at the top of the game. I think. If yeah. He wanted to, yeah. Yeah. We've seen Jack Sock and Sam Query and John Isner. You know, guys that are just maybe they're done with the tour. They're yeah. almost done, and they're getting offers for hundreds of thousands of dollars to join professional teams. Sam, Sam's playing this. Right. Yeah, Sam yeah. Curry's playing. So we'll see how he does. But how does that translate to, to spectators? Because tennis is so tense. The tension that builds up every point, every, 100%. every game, every set. Well, the spectators, are, you know, the, I think if you looked at the Indian Wells, they had a huge event down there. They had thousands of participants, thousands of participants in the mm-hmm. event. They had crowds, and I went down for one day. I don't know how many tickets they sold, but, you know, there was a decent amount of crowd. But it, it's nothing like the tennis. I mean, no. it's not even close. But but the tennis doesn't have two or 3,000 participants like this did either. Yeah, so it's that, much more democratic. Yeah, yeah and so it, it was just fun to see. And uh, But you're, you're right. I don't think it translates. There's not the tension is what you said. Yeah. There's not the athleticism of running back and forth yeah. and competing and smashing. Like so, so you get... You have a smaller court. You get these like quick exchanges followed by like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten dinks yeah. that don't show anything. They're just dinking, and then all of a sudden it's boom, boom, and it's over. So yeah. it's like so. It's like how do you follow? I mean, so it'll be interesting to see how. Well, we'll see tomorrow how it translates with the ratings and stuff. If people like it, yeah, I'll keep an eye on that. I'll post up something in the notes so people can track that, but. Yeah, I figure um, you don't, whatever, we're talking about how your body starts to fall apart with a brutal effort of playing tennis at that level, that it's not going to be that way. You're not doing the quick lateral moves and the, and the weight bearing. It's not as hard, but it is and, But it is a little bit hard on your body. And the yeah. one thing why is because that little wiffle ball, it doesn't bounce well when no. it's, when, unless you, if you whack it hard, It'll bounce a little bit, but softer shots don't come up at all. So a lot of times people, even older people, that they can hit it if it's on their paddle, but they go to move for it and it drops and they lunge for it. Yeah. And that's when you can hurt yourself when you yeah. lunge. Sure. That's the hamstrings and so forth. Yeah. Well, what do you think is the what is the, the future of tennis? I know that there's, you know, I mean, Serena and Venus are basically out of the game and you know some of the big names are i guess it's um there's always a new crop you know like but what what do you think's you know what is it technology and everything changing how does that translate i I think we're just we're just coming into a new period uh of the game you got some you know the three you know novak and uh federer nadal 
you know, those two guys, they're, well, Federer's out now, and Novak's, you know, how many more years will he play? And Nadal, I don't think, is going to play much more than a no. year or two at the most. And uh, and so we've got, you got these two young guys that are coming up with Sinner and Alcaraz that are, the, the, those are guys that look like they're going to be at the top of the game for the next 10 years. Yeah. And those are guys are exciting to watch. I don't, I don't think that any of those guys, I don't, I don't think Federer, Novak, or, Nadal were as good at 19 as, as these guys no, are at 19. They're further along in their development. Huh? But but will they have as long longevity of careers? Who knows, right? Yeah, Who knows? Made, and then his titles, probably not. Probably not. No, but, I mean, who's going to duplicate 20, 20, 20 majors? I mean, that's re- incredible. But they're fun to watch. And yeah. they're kind of replacements because I enjoy watching them. They're the two most exciting guys we've seen. Uh, the women, I, I don't see quite as much excitement in the game right now. So no, how, th- how do you replace the Williams sisters? It, well, you don't. I mean, it's just don't. You just have to have other talent coming up. And did you see King Richard? I didn't see King Richard. I no. recommend it. I'm okay. not a tennis guy. I thought that movie was really fantastic. I just, you know, the it's on my list. The, yeah, the and it's the way that you move through the coaching ranks as well, the different levels of coaching that get you in the door. You know, through. It's just interesting. Well, those girls were obviously phenomenal. I mean, they didn't come up through the juniors, basically, like normal kids. I mean, they no, just, he, their dad knew right away. Yeah. That was a that was not just a, that was a confluence of incredible talent and will, determination. You put those two together with that talent at that level, it's gonna it's gonna happen. Yeah, I saw the. I mean, I didn't see the movie, but I saw the kids when they were you know eight nine years oh, old yeah? play. Yeah, I'm so, so. Eight nine years old. Could you at tell the then? You you could tell that they you know they, they were obviously something. they were raw but you could tell they were very physical and that they were very athletic and if yeah. they wanted to do it and they stuck with it they would they would do it basically yeah, yeah. so you could see it just like you could tell Roger Federer at an when early age you know at an early age that this guy had the had the real deal basically and you know if yeah. he wanted it he was going to own it and basically he decided he he wanted it and he became the best yeah I have a friend who's a, a professional musician i mean he's fantastic but you know there's a lot of fantastic musicians out there he said the only difference between you know just any six-year-old and mozart writing symphonies at age six is that mozart's dad made him practice six hours a day i'm not sure i totally buy that i think that there's inclinations and predilections that you know that are evident but there's something to be said just for the discipline and the constant Drilling and practice yeah, makes, the, makes up a lot. Makes up for a lot of lack of talent. You know? It's yeah, that's an interesting. Yeah, I mean, it might transcribe better to music than to and athletics because yeah. athletics usually those dominant parents that do that usually end up screwing the kids up. I have seen that happen more, before. more, way more often than than helps them. Basically, if the kid wants to do so. it, I mean, you need a parent to support. But you know, if they're if they're on Your the stage, kid like moms, that, it's going to be yeah. tough. Yeah, yeah. I've seen very talented. As a kid that I grew up with, his uncle was a bonus baby for the Pirates back in the fifties, and he was just preternaturally gifted at playing baseball as a shortstop. And by the time he got out of little league and into high school, he just didn't want to play anymore. He's so much better than all the rest of us. It wasn't even. It was, it was just fun to be out there on a the field with him and watch him play because he was so gifted. And then he was just so burnt out by that age already. Yeah. 
Sure. I just say, have you seen that happen with some? Oh, oh you players? see it all the time. You see it all the time. Absolutely. Now, you've, now what you've, you've coached a lot. You've done a lot of coaching. Have you seen those parents? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's not fun to see them, and it's not. I feel no. bad for the kids. And have uh, you ever had to give them a, a scolding or a lecture? These parents or. Uh, no, because I, I I just really didn't want to coach people like that with yeah. the family. It's didn't not, even it, want to get into it. No, because no. there's too many other people who are in it for the right reason. So it's it's not fun to get involved with it. It's uh, it's kind of a losing situation. Yeah, for everyone, huh? For everyone, yeah. Emotionally, yeah. it's not fun to see that, and just puts too much pressure on the kids. It's hard enough to compete without having to listen to a critical parent. Yeah. I mean, we've all had, we, we, I'm sure we've all had times in our lives where we have a, that critical parent voice in our, in our mind, like, you know, mm-hmm. you suck, you stink. And, you know, if, yeah. if that's going on all the time, you can't do anything. No, that's really, um, parents say, what's that Philip Larkin poem? I'm not going to remember it, but something that goes, da, da, da. they fuck us up, our ma and pa. <laughs> I wish I could remember the other lines because it sets it up even better. But that's the gist of it. Yeah. They fuck us up. But it's really um, quite a, you know, to be at your level like that, it must feel pretty good looking back and thinking, wow, I got to do this. It was a fun life. Yeah, it was a fun life traveling around the world, playing sports and being able to compete at a high level and, you know, and feeding off of that energy was cool. Yeah. And now still the Ojai Tennis Tournament. Um here we are again. How many volunteers? It's like 500 volunteers. Over 500 volunteers. They're the lifeblood. 1,700 of, players, I remember, it used to be. They're the lifeblood of the, the tournament. 1,700 per per year? Well, I mean, it's, So it's, if it's, you count everything coming through. you count all, all the competition? Yeah, that's closer to maybe 1,250 12, or so. That's still pretty good. Yeah. Still, yeah, yeah, it's one of the largest. Um, we have about 25 different divisions. Uh, the Pac-12 men's and women's, of course, is our signature event. It's now a dual match format that they play at Libby Park. Um, is there anyone to keep an eye on this year? Um, I would say the USC men and the Stanford women have really kind of dominated. Yeah. Um, the last Any particular of players or just the programs? Um, there's a young, the number one player at USC is named Stefan Dostanich, and he's mm-hmm. a local kid from Irvine. Uh, he won our CIF division here back in 2018. And Stefan oh. was uh, ranked number one in college tennis a year ago, and he's still one of the top players. So I would uh, look out for him. And like I say, the USC men are great. Uh, Billy Martin brings his UCLA Bruins yeah. every year. Brian's former doubles partner, they played the Ojai together. That's right. And so Coach Martin uh, is great, and he's going to be uh, coming up again. We're going to be honoring him along with some others um, at our Friday night special event fundraiser during the yeah. tournament. Yeah, um, that kind of kicks it off, huh? Yeah, so that's uh, the, the Friday night, uh, the April, I guess that would be the 28th uh, at the Ojai Valley Museum. Tickets yeah. are, are $150, and it's I'll, our big... I'll post that up in It's the our notes. big fundraiser, and uh, of course, you can get all the information and buy your tickets online at theohai.net, yeah. which is a wonderful... Don't you love that domain I do name? love that it's domain. Really I mean, a, I had my eye on that for a while. It has a ring, yeah, and that was nice gifted to, to us by a very uh, kind and generous Ojai resident Yeah, sitting next to me to my right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a, there's a story to that, but I'm happy to have done that, really. It definitely belongs to you more than me. 
Yeah. It was a bit of a process getting it switched over, though. It didn't didn't happen by accident. No, no, but you had the yeah. domain. Brett had the domain. The, that was my original Ojai, website, for so people know. The Ojai.net, but for a tennis tournament called, you know, known as the Ojai, yeah. you know, with the net, net at of the course. end. Of course, it's perfect. Uh, when Brett uh, called me uh, one day and told me uh, he'd like to offer it to the tournament. I think somebody uh, actually approached me, one of your volunteers. Okay. So it's, it was in the works for a while. But, yeah, what was the other thing I was going to ask you um, coming up on this month and the tournament coming along? And, shoot, there I had something in mind. But, um, yeah, just tell me what's the feeling. This Oh, I know what it was. Getting the tournament back after COVID. Like, how did it go last year? Was your first year back in the regular routine? It went okay. We, we, uh, we did require... The, the vaccination status yeah. and card for every player and uh, and volunteer and, um, and and of course uh, you know player uh, and, and volunteer um, so that kind of took a little bit of luster because there were some who mm-hmm. out there who you know were uh, adamant about not being vaccinated so felt like this year without having those health and safety guidelines of uh, Um, procedure to go along with that that we're going to do uh you know we're we're fully back uh and uh and it's exciting um because this time of year in ojai um i mean april in ojai means the tennis tournament yeah for so many years it's Um, also tradition that it rains during the tournament do you think you'll get some rain this year We've had enough rain. We've had enough rain. No more rain. Talk about that. Can we talk about the tea tent and maybe the orange juice? Um, Oh yeah. Well, I love the tea tent. I, I, uh, you know, those are the. I don't know exactly what's the equivalent, but that's I guess our Wimbledon strawberries and cream, right. right? That's right. Yeah, that's really just fun. This be served on actual china. During the event, not paper cups like probably most other places. So yeah, it's very exciting, and uh, I wish you guys the best. And thanks for stopping by. Thank Did you for having us, Steve, Brian. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, just thinking out loud. So I think about everything getting back to normal in Ohio after the pandemic. Some things don't quite feel back to normal. I think there's been a lot of uh, discussion about what's going on, city council, school district. It seems like some of the pent-up frustration during the pandemic is really starting to take a toll on the body politic. There's a lot of consternation and uh, certain negative energies going around, which I'm not going to get into at this point. Just to say... That with the tennis tournament coming up and then the music festival behind it, we are in festival season. And I'm hoping people can step back from the brink of all this angry discourse and remember the things that make Ojai so special. And certainly the tennis tournament's a big part of that. And what a treat for me to, I'm not a tennis person, but to be able to talk to somebody who made a brilliant career at it and also uh, talking to Steve about how many volunteers it takes, 500 volunteers, to put on this five-day tournament. And uh, what, 14, 1,500 players, he said. It's a big production. And uh, it makes me very proud to live in a place 
I can pull off something of this scale and importance. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.